I got, I got the greatest story in the world to tell you. It's about me being right. I've been waiting to tell you this since yesterday. Okay. So, so, greatest story. Uh, about three weeks ago, uh, I went to visit my friend Dan. He owns one-way board shop. So we're in the mall. We're hanging out. My wife was with me. And she goes, I'm going to go get some coffee. So if you know the mall, like downstairs from one-way board shop is like the coffee shop. And so it's been like 10, 15 minutes. And I'm like, how long does it take to get coffee, right? So I go up and I, and I go down the escalator and I go down to the coffee shop and she's not there. Anybody know what's right next door to the coffee shop? Panda. No, Bath and Body Works. What kind of women are you? Come on. Bath and Body Works. So I walk by next, and sure enough, there she is, Bath and Body Works. So funny. Last service, I said Bath and Body Works, and like a woman over here is all, <laughs> really? Okay, anyway, so she's back in there. Men hate Bath and Body Works because you're in there, and women are always like, oh, it all, didn't this smell good? It all smells the same. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. It's all the same. So she wants to get, you know, uh, she's like looking for car fresheners for the car. So we were back there and she's all, oh, which one do you like? I go find, like, the only one that smells different is this vanilla coconut. And I'm like, oh, I like that. She's all, oh, that's too strong. And I'm like, like a man. <laughs> so I got that in my car. All right, so. So no joke. Like, so the three weeks since then, we get, I, every time I drive in her car, I'm like, man, it smells like raiding this car. Somebody spray. So it's not, that's my air freshener. It's wonderful. It's so great. I'm like, okay, get in the car again. Are you sure? That smells like raid. It doesn't smell like raid. But, you know, seriously, for like three weeks, I'm doing this. So Friday night, she comes home from work. She leaves her windows down in her car. Saturday, I'm, I'm working in the backyard. She comes out of the garage and she goes, did you spray raid in the garage? right no and then then you see a dawn or like oh I'm like it's right that doesn't smell good it smells like raid that's what it smells like so i gotta point it out right i don't get very many moments when i'm like yeah all three services i'm telling everybody that story might even be in the email update too no no, no. All right. Uh, welcome to Element. If you are new, <laughs> it smells like raid if you're new. Uh, if you're new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you don't have to shut it off. What you can do is, is download a program. It's called Uversion. Click on live in that. Or if you don't want to click on live, you can type in the zip code 93455-5854. It'll bring us up by zip code in your smartphone. You'll get the sermon notes and the verses and all that go along with this morning's message. So why don't you stand with me for reading God's word. I hate one of those cookies in the back. It's like stuck in my teeth. This is 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do, as others do who have no hope. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would be uh, to us, reveal to us the God that we know that you are, that we'd be those who live lives of full hope and confidence in who you are and what you have done and continue to do. Uh, we ask that our lives reflect uh, the great hope that you are and that we can be a hope to those around us. Amen. Have a seat. 
It's kind of funny, after the whole baby thing last service, my, my collar was all like jacked up and stuff, so it went the whole service, and, and so Paul goes, we've got to make this service right, so it, and I'm already just flubbing the snot out of this, so whatever. So, uh, Genesis, we're back into Genesis today, we've been like Genesis 68, week 68, week 69, then I gave you week 70, then we had Father's Day, so it's all jumbled and it's all over the place. Today we're going to get right back on track, and so I'll try and bring you up to date where we've been just the last few weeks. Uh, in Scripture, so far, there's been a lot of death and a lot of couples and their deaths. Uh, Adam and Eve, uh, Noah and his wife, I like to call Noah's wife Mrs. Zark, because it's Noah's Zark. But then I'm always told if I've got to explain the joke, it's not a good joke. So, all right, yeah. Uh, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca. I think at this point, all four of Jacob's wives have died. And in the text today, Jacob himself dies. And, the, and him getting to the end of his life is this picture of a dad gathering his grandsons and his sons together to say goodbye. Three weeks we, ago, we looked at how he told all his boys the truth, what he thinks about them, what he thinks the future is going to end up holding for them. And these boys have made some dumb decisions in their life. He is not afraid to point that out. Uh, open your Bibles to Genesis 49. Uh, George Carlin, the great theologian, uh, once <laughs> once said, think about how stupid the average person is and realize half of them are stupider than that because he uses stupider and whatever. Okay. Uh, and I think that's because no one really learns from their mistakes. I read this article recently. It's, it was from this doctor, and he was talking about stupidity. It was about motorcycles and stupidity, but it's more about stupidities than motorcycles because I have one, so they're not stupid. Therefore, uh, there's a 30-year-old police officer, and he's traveling on his motorcycle at highway rates of speed. His front tire gives out. He falls off, slides about 30 feet. His helmet comes open, so he has road rash on his face, his arm, his leg, basically all over his body. So the doctor goes through his medical history, and he says, okay, tell me about you know, your medical history. What surgeries have you had, broken bones, stuff like that. So the guy rattles off 12 to 13 different broken bones that he had in the past, including his broken ankle and 10 bones that were broken in his back. And how did he break them? His last motorcycle accident. Exactly. So the doctor, you know, tells him, you know, motorcycles aren't bad, but perhaps maybe you shouldn't be driving one, <laughs> right? Because, and the guy, and this is the guy's response. He says, well, I've been riding since I was eight. Like, like that's justification for still riding like you are eight. You know, that's... And this is the kind of thing. We need people in our lives to tell us the truth. And this is what Jacob does. You know, some of his kids learn from their mistakes, and they changed. Judah was one of those kids. He learned from his mistakes. He saw Jesus for who he was, and eventually he changes. So Jacob, on his deathbed, admonishes all of his boys to change, to follow God. So a couple questions as we begin. Number one, what do you hope your dad would say to you on his deathbed? Or if your dad is passed, what, would you, what do you hope he would have said to you? What would you want him to say to you? And then also, what would you want to say to your kids on your deathbed? If you knew the hour of your death and it's like one hour away, what would you want to say to them? What would you want them to hear? And then lastly, if you're, you know, a lot of you are younger, so what, what would you do if your parents died? What, what would you do in that? Would you love Jesus? Would you live for God? Or would you curse and blame him and be mad at him for taking your parents away? Because in America, we don't deal with pain very well at all. We have it easy. Today, our kids are traumatized by the craziest of mundane things. And by hiding our children you know, from all the pain around them and giving them whatever they want when they whine or throw a fit has led to this inbred sense of entitlement. As a matter of fact, February 1st, 2009, National Institutes of Health did a study. 
And they're looking at kids who have been raised like this who are now entering the workforce. These kids have been sheltered from whatever pain there is and given whatever they want. They find that they are creating chaos in their workplace and in their friendships. They talk about how consciously and subconsciously in this article that all these kids have these self-image goals, that they're unattainable because they think everybody should worship them. Everybody else now at their job thinks everybody should worship them, and nobody's worshiping each other, and they're all mad. Like a bunch of little demigods. It's kind of like going back, you know, Zeus and Thor. And like, ah, worship me. It's, it's that kind of thing. And so they all begin to melt down and they claim I have a hostile work environment. And then they go on medical leave and the company has to foot the bill for their workplace trauma. It's crazy. It's crazy. Our society is falling apart because we refuse to confront our children and let them experience the effects of their own sin when they mess up, the consequences of what that looks like, to expose them. Hey, yes, your grandmother died or your friend died or this, you know, and, and let them be able to go through the pain of that or to even tell them the truth when they're wrong. I was reading this article this week, and there's this guy, and he's, he's uh, updating his father-in-law's house. And so he's been doing this thing for months, and then he looks out, and there's a light on in his father-in-law's house across the street that he's been working on. And it turns out there's a couple junior hires and a couple high schooler kids, and they're in there, and they're spray-painting the walls, and they're breaking sinks, and costs $40,000 worth of damage. This guy sees this happening, gets up, runs across the street, catches these kids, locks them in a closet, calls the police. The police show up, and they arrest these kids and take them off. What happens the very next week? is these kids' parents are now suing this guy for locking their kids in a closet for endangerment and stuff like that. Seriously, oh, my poor kid was locked in a closet. No, your kid was a demon, and he was vandalizing this house. I tell you, if this was me when I was a kid, my mom first would have beat me senseless, and then she would have taken me over there and maybe apologized to the guy, and I would have spent months or years working on this guy's house to put it back to the way it was, or better than when it was when I first showed up to vandalize it. That's what would have happened. And not... Then do that with your kids, dang it. (laughs) The truth is, allowing kids to experience pain, especially things that they've wrought in their own lives, makes them begin to grow up. And this is what Jacob does. He prophesies. He tells his sons, you need to follow Jesus. You need to follow God. You need to love him with your life. Genesis 49, verse 1, it says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together. I may tell you what shall happen to you. In the days to come, assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So this is what he does. He brings them together, his sons and his grandsons. So they see the reality of death, that death is not desirable. It's not the circle of life that, as the New Testament says, death is our enemy. And today we know it's been conquered in the person of Christ. But he wants them to see this and identify with what's going on. What you need to see is that here is a man who loves his kids, but he loves his Lord even more. He has been through lots of stupidity, but now he loves God more than anything else. And so he blesses his kids, he offers them some judgment, begins to go out like a man. I think Jacob is minutes from death. I think he's probably breathing really hard, but he takes the time to lay his hands on his sons and grandsons, and he prays for them and prophesies over them. And that's what we covered three weeks ago. If you missed it, I encourage you to go to the website and download it and listen to it, because this is what comes directly after it, after he tells them what they are supposed to do when he dies. Uh, Genesis 49, starting at verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham, my grandpappy, bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. He says, you know, God told us that we're going to be there. That's our promised land to our ancestors, to those that come after us. We're to be there, so bury me there. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah. And there I buried Leah, the field in the cave that is in 
in it were bought from the Hittites. And it's interesting in this because Leah was not the wife that he loved, and yet he's going to be buried with her because he wants to be where God said he was going to live. Again, what he's showing his kids, that he loved Rachel, but he loved God even more. And some people get this all backwards. They, they meet somebody, they start dating, and all of a sudden that person begins to come their, their God. All of, their, all of their convictions go right out the window. It's, oh, I love you, I'm going to follow you. And then eventually, you know, if you get married, that just gets even worse. What you have to understand at the outset is that we're to love Jesus more than anything else in this life. Anything else in this life. If you live with another person as your God, crazy things are going to start happening. You'll get married, and your marriage will start to fall apart because this person that you married is not a good God, because we are not good gods. You may have kids and think, oh, my kids, they'll, they'll make us a family. We're going to be whole. It's going to be so wonderful. The kids will fix it all. No, kids are midget demons. And you've got you to exercise them all the stinking time, because they're crazy. Jacob and Israel, metaphorically, Jacob and Israel places his faith in God first, in God first. And now Israel becomes a name of an entire nation. Verse 32, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. I mean, what a way to go, right? Follow Jesus! And then he sings like a batting in sync song, bye, 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 and goes. I mean, what's, I mean, I wonder what my last day is going to be like. I doubt it's going to be that good. I mean, I may be the crazy guy on the motorcycle and stuff like, oh, well, he's gone because he's on the motorcycle. You know, I try to talk to my wife about this sometimes. You know, what, what's, it's gonna, what's it going to be like, you know, when we go, when we're really old? What's it going to look like? She always tells me to shut up because she doesn't want to really want to talk about it. I mean, if I live long enough, I swear to you, I'm going to have Alzheimer's because my memory is bad now. It gets worse every single day. If you know what Alzheimer's is, it's a this, it's this disease that slowly eats away your memory where you stop becoming you because your memories are no longer there. And when I talk about this, for some reason, my wife doesn't want me to leave. It's weird because I cause her so much frustration. Like, it smells like raid. Don't buy it. You know, that, that kind of thing. But to be perfectly honest, I fear going out with a whimper and not a bang like Jacob. A few years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, and his grandfather had fallen and broken his hip. He went to the hospital. Uh, along with his broken hip, he actually also had dementia. Dementia is the most common form of Alzheimer's today. And so he forgot what was important. He forgot his tact. He forgot his decency. forgot grace. He forgot that people loved him, that people wanted him to get better. And so while in the hospital after surgery, he gets angry that he's tied to all these tubes, all this medical equipment, and being angry, he pulls off his sensors, his electrodes, even yanks out his own catheter, and he starts spraying nurses down with urine. Now, if this is a comedy, we'd be like, ah, that's so funny. But it's real life, so it's not funny. My wife is a nurse, so that kind of thing would not be funny at all. But then my friend told me, you know, his grandfather does it simply because he's mean. I thought it was because of the dementia. He said, no, no, no. It's when he's lucid that he does these things. When he remembers who he is, the condition that he's in, that's when he acts that way. He acts that way because he can get away with it. I mean, I used to personally think, I can't wait till I get old. Because I'm going to be the craziest old man. Like, all the kids will be like, that's crazy old Carver down the street. You know, that, that, you, know <laughs> you kids! You know? I was like, I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to let my craziness spew on everybody around me. It'll be so wonderful. And after hearing this story, I kind of got convicted in my heart. And I thought, you know what? That can't be me because that, that's sin. My life is to be about bringing Jesus' glory in everything I do, always, ending well. The Jewish prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The Jewish rendering of this verse is that the heart is more deceitful than anything else, and it is mortally sick. What God says to us, to the writers of Scripture, that what makes us individuals, makes us who we are in our core, it is broken. 
it is broken. And this is why Christ longs to refocus us and redeem us and restore and remake our hearts. I mean, I understand redemption. I understand God loving me, God calling me, and I don't want to forget it. I don't want to go out in any way that would now bring him dishonor. And the beauty is that Jacob, he finishes strong. He finishes well. He remembers all that God did in his life, and he finishes strong. And that is my prayer for all of you guys as well. So what happens here is the head of the family is dead. What are the rest of the brothers going to do? That's, that's the question. Will they remember what God has done? Are they going to follow through? Chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him. That's a standard emotional response and kissed him. This is also a token of farewell. Uh, you don't see a lot in the Old Testament, but you know this was a Hebrew custom. Uh, in the Hebrew book of Jubilee, chapter 23, verse 5, it mentions that uh, Isaac did this for Abraham, his father. What it really shows you is that Joseph loved his father the most. Verse 2, And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, so the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, that's another interesting note that probably just flies right by you. But it's, in, but it's really interesting because normally the priests of Osiris in Egypt, what they would do is they would embalm people. They believed that a person, in order to live on, they had to be properly preserved. And if you were preserved well enough, it showed your right to eternal life. But Joseph doesn't have the priests do it. He has the physicians do it, which shows, one, the physicians are underneath him because Joseph didn't follow the religion. He followed the one true God, and so the, so the priests weren't underneath him. But he also has the physicians do it in order to distinguish his father's faith from that of the rest of Egypt. Uh, Egypt is a people who actually looked and liked Joseph. They looked towards Jacob, and they liked Jacob. And, and Joseph is showing, my dad does not follow the God of the Egyptians. My dad follows the one true God. Also, it's going to be a really long trip getting to this cave, and a body would not make it that far in a rickety cart in the hot sun, so you've got to embalm them. Uh, just a side note, uh, anybody know who the only other person in the Bible to be embalmed was? Joseph, it's in verse 26. See, young cash cab right there, boom, got an answer. No, all right. Verse 3, 40 days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. We do it quicker now, thank God. Okay, and the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And that, again, can be love for Jacob or Joseph or both. 70 days of mourning in Egypt is a royal practice. Jacob's being shown a very high honor. Israel at this time, they would mourn between 7 and 30 days. And so what the Egyptians are doing is they're going to bury Jacob like a king. He's, you know, non-Christians are going to bury him like a king. You know, I think that today the only Christian who's going to live and get this honor is going to be Billy Graham when he dies. Uh, you know, Billy Graham, he, he actually wrote a book called Finishing Well. Uh, it's, it's newer if you guys want to read it, but it's all about this, this deal. He preaches his whole life. He has integrity. He loves God, loves people. I think when he dies, front page of newspapers. Billy Graham is dead. I think a nation's going to mourn. And I think what Billy Graham shows is that non-Christians don't have to hate Christians. As long as we need people who, who everyone knows what we're for, not what we're against. We are for relationship with God. We are for life. We are for hope. We are for love. We are for God's restoration of mankind. And so you see, Jacob became a good example in a bad place. He was a man that lived there and didn't compromise his principles while there. It'd be great to end well because, you know, he starts off as a, as a terrible mama's boy, a manipulative little liar, tricks his blind dad and his stupid brother, runs for his life, meets God, lives the next 40 years, hit and miss, four wives, and eventually has a football team worth of children. You know, they're always fighting him and each other. He vacillates between being a good dad and a bad dad, but gets it all together all in the end, and he finishes 
well. Verse 4, And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh. He can't approach Pharaoh himself because he's unclean. He's been around a dead body. Saying, If I have now found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed up for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Literally in the Hebrew, it means that Jacob went and dug this place in this tomb for himself. So when he says, You bury me and stick me in the hole, which hole, Dad? The one I dug. Stick me in the, that's a guy who knows what he wants. I dug a hole, bury me in the hole that I dug. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And again, this is another interesting phrase that takes place in this section of Scripture. Some Jewish commentators believe that at this point there's already some friction between the, the Israelites and the Egyptians, and that they're being kept against their will to start to become captives. And so when Joseph goes to bury his father, you'll see that the women, the children, the livestock don't go. And so they're saying, well, the Egyptians you know, kept them behind so the Israelites couldn't leave because they wanted, wanted to leave. I don't think that's the case. I think they wanted the Israelites to stay because they were such a great blessing in the land. I think it lasted for a very long time, this blessing, because even Exodus will tell you that it took a while for near Pharaoh to come in and forget all the things the uh, Israelites had done in the land of Egypt. And, and I think it's also clear that's a precursor to the Exodus, but it's just part of that's coming. I think they were such a great blessing like you and I are supposed to be. Verse 6, And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. So today, if you're watching this on TV, same thing every channel. It's like, I want to watch my show. Oh, it's not on. It's this funeral. This is every channel, this thing. Verse 10. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abil Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Now, threshing floors. They're normally up very high on top of mountains. Uh, Here's a picture of one. Uh, here's a picture of another one. And so when they're up that high, you'd get a lot of wind that would blow over the top. And so when you wanted to separate you know, wheat from chaff, you'd be able to drop your wheat, and the chaff would blow out, and you would keep the wheat. And so you keep dropping it because there'd be a lot of wind up there. Here's another one. So it'd go, it'd hit the rocks, and the other stuff would kind of blow away, and they would kind of keep it where it was supposed to be. So it's the very high place in this land. And so they're up on this mountain, all these people mourning the death of Jacob, and all these people look at it and go, what the heck is going on there? It makes such an impression on the people there that they actually renamed the place Abil Mizraim, which means the mourning of Egypt. And I think there's essentially two parts to uh, Jacob's funeral in this. The first is here. There's probably some Egyptian rites that are performed here to show respect for Jacob. But the whole population probably think it was an Egyptian noble who died. That's how much respect they had for Jacob at the end of his life. I think the second one is a smaller one. It's just Jacob's family. I think it's at his tomb as they lay him in the cave. Verse 12, Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And you may think this is just him repeating himself over and over and over. It's not. What he wants you to understand is that they have a stake in the promised land. This is them coming back. We own this. This is ours. It's part of the promised land. God promises this eventually will all be ours. But here's our first stake, and we own this. Verse 14, after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt. So he goes back to being a slave to Pharaoh. That shows a lot of integrity with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now, here's the deal. Jacob's life is done. There's been lots of bends, lots of twists in there, but he loves his family and he loves his God even more. 
The question that the text is going to look towards now is what is going to happen next? What is going to happen with these kids? How are the boys going to relate to each other? Will they follow their dad's example at the beginning of his life or the dad's example at the end of his life? And that's what we're going to cover next week. But today, I want to briefly tie up Jacob's life with one of the most important prophecies that Jacob ever uttered in his life. It's in Genesis 49. It was on his deathbed. It's regarding to Judah. Because when speaking about his son, he also begins to tell us about Jesus. You see, Jacob matters because his sons become the nation of Israel. And eventually through Judah, Jesus Christ comes. And we don't talk about Judah because he was such a great guy. He wasn't. He was terrible, just like his dad. But eventually he changed. And God works through him. And through his family line comes Jesus. And this morning, I don't mean to take out my frustration on you as we end this, but I just might a little bit. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine as I was writing this message, and we got on this subject, and he, about how he was talking to some people that know me, and I know him, and I know them, and, and they apparently don't like me, which, which is fine. I have a lot of people that don't like me. Trust me. I, I got it. Uh, sometimes it's because I'm ADD, and, and I'll be talking to you, and in the middle of a conversation, I'll be like, da 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 and I'll just walk away, Okay. I don't know if I have mild autism. I don't know if I've ever done it to you. I'm sorry, but I'll probably do it again. It's not an excuse. It just happens. I don't know. My, my, my brain just clicks off, and I go another direction. Really sorry. Not sorry enough to stop it from happening, but, it, but I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> the second thing that people don't like me is usually because I'm, I'm blunt, and, and sometimes people see it as being mean. Uh, I mean, I was even talking to uh, this, this guy that I meet with every once in a while uh, a little bit ago, and he says, he goes, hey, let's get together and, and talk about this thing. And I said, really? You want to get, well, we've talked about this thing like 10 times. And you want to get together and talk about it again? Is this the same thing or something else? Never mind. I don't need to meet with you. I'm like, boom, there you go, right? Because sometimes I'm just seen as, as blunt and mean. But the reason these people didn't like me was actually more because I, I don't mind not being liked for this, but uh, because of my view of Jesus. Because I treat Jesus like a king and not like a peasant we get to push around. That I don't, believe, I don't believe Jesus is a cultural little icon that we can fit in our little box. I believe that Jesus is king and sovereign Lord. And when we follow him, we follow him. We don't say, oh, well, our culture likes these things. Therefore, Jesus says it's okay. We don't get to do that. We get to do what Jesus calls us to do, period. And if you miss anything in the book of Genesis, you cannot miss the essential point of it, which is Jesus. I mean, most people today, when they think of Jesus, think of a humble peasant who thought everybody should be poor and give all their stuff away and looks and dresses and acts like a hippie. If he was around today, he'd drive a VW or, you know, a hybrid if he could find one that was available. He paints his toes, listens to mopey Christian music or, or at least mopey musicians like, you know, like Jason Mraz or, you know, Jack Johnson or something like that. He doesn't really want to fight with anybody, you know, well, that, that's just Jesus. No, that's not Jesus. That's someone else. That is all false Jesus. It is, it, that's the buddy Christ. That's, that's, hey, I'm Jesus and you can do whatever you want because, hey, I'll just tell you to do what you want. That is not, our Jesus is a king and a ruler of strength and might and authority. He shows up to Jacob's family and runs them their entire lives through the ringer to get them to this point. It is important for you and I to understand and see Jesus in two forms, which I think that Jacob finally came to see at the end of his life. Number one is the humility of his incarnation. Jesus became a man. We need to see and understand that. But secondly, it is the glory of his exaltation. Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Today, we only see Jesus in his humility. We only talk about him in his humility. That's all we get. But we should even more than that see his exaltation. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, I'm just going to give you one verse and then kind of walk through this. 
Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Lord, that's God, seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That goes on and it talks about lightning and thunder and angels and worship. If you go to the book of John, chapter 12, John starts talking about this and how Jesus is quoting these things. And then what John tells you in John 12, verse 41, is the person that Isaiah saw was Jesus. That's who he saw seated on that throne. And yet Jesus gets off that throne, becomes a man. That's humility. He's descended eventually from Jacob and Judah. He grows up in a place called Nazareth. If you were to take and translate that out of the Greek, it'd be like Sisquak. Or Bakersfield or Los Alamos or Gary or something like that. He's a regular guy, works a regular job for 30 years. Then he preaches and teaches for three years. Dies a terrible death in a humble way. He rises from death on Sunday. It's where we worship on Sunday. He demonstrates to crowds over 500 people that he is alive. You have 33 years of incarnation, and the rest is exaltation. Eternity past, eternity forward, exaltation. And if you saw Jesus today, you would see King of kings, Lord of lords, ruler of all creation. It would probably scare the crap out of you if you saw him for what he really is. And you see glimpses of this throughout the book of Genesis. Jesus shows up in Genesis 3, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, promises himself to come and redeem his people, shows up as Melchizedek to Abraham, shows up for a meal with Abraham. This goes on through Abraham's line. Jesus showing up, and then I think eventually it clicks in Jacob. And in Genesis 49.10, as he gives this prophecy to his son, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is a sign of a king. Jesus would come from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, showing it be a man who was coming. And to tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The word peoples is the word nations. Everything is his. Nations, tribes, peoples, everything. He rules over everything. It doesn't matter how you feel about it or if you don't like it. He reigns. Moses in Numbers 24 verse 17 says, I see him, but not now. I see Jesus, but it's going to be down the road a little bit. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. He's going to be a king. He shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. He will bring justice. He will deal with sin. He will save us all. 2 Samuel 7, 12, the focus is David, who was a descendant of Jacob and Judah. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you are dead, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That points to Jesus. Everything comes and goes. Jesus' kingdom, it lasts forever. The church is the outpost of his kingdom. We're supposed to point the way. Jesus will reign forever and ever and ever, and he is a good king, and we are not good kings. Jesus doesn't change. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and Judah becomes a nation and a people of himself. Today, we call Jews Jews. It's based on the name Judah, out of this guy. So he says, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. He will be our great shepherd. In Hebrews 1.8, God the Father says of God the Son, but of the Son he says, Your throne, O God, when the Father calls you God, you're God. If a New Age teacher or some guru calls you God, you're not. You're not. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of our rightness is a scepter of your kingdom. His people live in this kingdom are righteous. Evil people are not welcome. But we're all evil. So how does that work? 
It is God's grace. Jesus comes. He lives the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. He gives those to us as a gift of grace. That's why we submit ourselves to him and we follow him and we lay ourselves at the foot of the cross and trust him for our salvation and our life. And he is our Lord and our King and our ruler. Don't all people go to heaven? No, that would be hell. If uh, heaven was full of people who like hated God, what would that be like? Earth. That's what it would be like. It sucked to die and go to earth. Right? Open to Revelation chapter 19. Now we're getting into it. But we are all evil. We are. You know, how do we get to spend eternity with God? It's the idea of repentance and grace. We are saved by God's grace because of the shed blood of Jesus on that cross because he died for us. In Revelation chapter 19. What happens is John sees a vision. He's an old man. He's probably in great pain, wondering, man, has my life all been worth it at this point? And so heaven opens, and what does John see? He sees Jesus. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. He says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Does Jesus have a right to judge you? Of course he does. You may whine real loud and say, It's not fair. Doesn't matter. He's a king, not a peasant you push around. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems he has a name written that no, no one knows but himself he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood whose blood is that robe dipped in his own because before he judges you he dies for you and the name by which he is called is the word of god Jesus is the word of God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word is with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the incarnate word of God. The written word is there to reveal the incarnate word of God. Everything is about Jesus. Everything you need to know about God is found in Jesus. I know some people who are really into angels. Oh, I love angels. And they got little figurines and pictures. And, oh, angels, angels, angels. You know who angels are into? Jesus. <laughs> be, who, be into who angels are into. Verse 15, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is Jesus. Big and powerful and wonderful and glorious Jesus Christ. That is why we are here, and that is the Jesus we all need to know. And when you pray, that's the Jesus you're praying to. And when you serve, that's the Jesus you're serving. And when you sing songs, that's the Jesus you're singing songs to. And if you obey, that's the Jesus you are obeying. And if you trust, that's the Jesus you are trusting with your life. You must see Jesus as big as he is. Because if you don't, you will think that you can control your own life and you will totally screw it up just like Jacob and Judah did. We need to see him as he is because when we see him as he is, everything begins to change just like it did for Jacob and Judah. We love him because he first loved us. We do not need to fear death because death was conquered in him. This is what we need to understand. And this is what Genesis is completely pointing all of us towards, understanding Jesus and who he is. And when you get to the New Testament, you start reading about all the things Jesus did. When you have the whole idea of the book of Genesis in context, you're like, man, that makes so much more sense. God has been promising this from eternity past of what he would do in the person of Christ. And you're just like, boom, your faith just opens up huge. And your understanding of God just goes wide because of what he has been doing since the very foundation of the world. He is lifting up Christ so we would understand who he is and what he was dead and the king that he is because when we understand that, our lives completely change. This is why every week we try to bring you guys to the place of communion where you understand and remember what Christ has done for us. That's why you break that cracker, which is just like his body that was broken for you and I. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. Somebody asked me this week, their parents came with them for the first time. 
He says, you know, what's the significance of dipping it? And I said, the significance is we don't want you to drink it. Is that just be gross? Because, oh, next, next, you know. You dip it because it, it's symbolic. It's symbolic. You know, you, you dip it in there, and it comes out, and it's covered in the wine. It's like the, Jesus' blood covers you and I. We must understand that sometimes it drips off of there when you pull it back out, like his blood dripped down that cross for you and I. It's remembrance of what he has done. And so we are this people who live and love and worship who he is because of all that he has done. Um, the band's going to come up. Maybe. Yes, they got it. <laughs> Ryan's turn. <laughs> He's walking in the door. Uh, so the band's going to come up. And as, as they do, we invite you guys uh, to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. You know, and maybe you need prayer. Maybe you've been in a place where you saw Jesus as someone who kind of conformed, you know, conforms to your little cultural model. He just tells you what you want, and, and you do what he wants you, or you, he does what you want him to do. Maybe that's how you see Jesus. You know, that's, that's a false Jesus. That's not the real Jesus. You need to be in a place of humbleness, following him because he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he calls us to certain things, which is to honor people, to love people, to love him. I mean, if, if you could summarize the entire law into two things, Jesus says, love God, love people. Everything else flows from that. And so we follow him in that and what that truly means. It doesn't mean that we make him into what we want him to be. We, we, he's revealed himself so we see him as he truly is. And if you have a small view of Jesus, I would encourage you to, to talk to one of the deacons or elders and, and pray with them. Uh, we, we give because uh, God's been so good to us, and so there's offering boxes on the side wall in the back. Uh, there's also food in the back, and you know maybe 11 o'clock was too early for you to get up this morning. Missed your breakfast. I don't know. But there's food in the back. You can grab something to eat and maybe get to know some other people. There's some questions on the back of the sermon notes. Uh, you know, one of them is, you know, what would you say to your, want to say to your kids on your deathbed? But I think another great question that you should be talking and asking about is, what, how does our life actually change when we see Jesus as big as he is? Because I think when you do, the fear goes away. The understanding of living for his grace and his glory makes much more sense. And everything about us begins to change because of the greatness of who he is and what he has done. Let's pray. Father, I ask that this morning we would be a people uh, who worship and glorify you as you are, as you have revealed yourself, because we are a people who there is no way for us to find you, to go on a vision quest and figure you out, because you are higher than our ways. You are greater than we are. And so you are a God who reveals yourself to us. And I ask that we would live in the confidence and the strength of that revelation. That we would live lives that not only honor you, but honor your image in those around us. Because you are the God who has revealed yourself as creator. And that you love your creation. Today I ask that you would move in our hearts and have us daily understand better and better who you are, the greatness and the glory of your exaltation, understanding the humbleness of your incarnation and your death on the cross that bought us and paid for us and enabled us to be saved. But also, and maybe more importantly, the greatness of who you have always been. That you are the Lord who is seated high on a throne, a throne that no one can take away, and yet you step off that throne to save your children. Have us trust in you as you truly are. 
And that would be the beginnings of our lives actually beginning to make a lot more sense. And God, we know that sometimes in our lives you are going to come and you're going to run us through the ringer because you want us to end well. And I ask when we are in times and places that we don't understand, we would still trust you because you are bigger and greater than our understanding. And we know in the end, all things work for your purposes and for your glory. Have us be those who don't fight you in that, but actually partner with you in that and live for you. We ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.